0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. Last night, the international writers' organization PEN gave a Freedom to Write Award to Moroccan writer Abraham Safardi. Safardi is a dissident and a prominent leftist and is now serving a life sentence because of his outspokenness. On today's Fresh Air, we meet Christine Safardi, who hid Abraham from Moroccan authorities for two years in the 70s and married him in a prison ceremony in 1986. Also today, we talk beer and scotch with beer and scotch expert Michael Jackson. Classical music critic Lloyd Schwartz reviews two recent recordings of Elliot Carter's works. And book critic John Leonard reviews the new novel from British writer Sarah Maitland. That's all coming up on Fresh Air. First,
1: the news. National Public Radio News in Washington. I'm Corva Coleman. After consultations with foreign leaders, President Bush announced this evening that Allied military forces would create encampments in northern Iraq in order to persuade Kurds to move back from the border to
2: areas where aid can be more easily distributed. NPR's Ann Geralt has more. At a hastily called news conference, President Bush said U.S., British, and French military units would build five to six encampments in northern Iraq where relief supplies can be distributed in an orderly way. The problem, the president acknowledged, is persuading the Kurds it's safe to move back from the mountainous border region where they're currently seeking refuge. The president said he did not believe Saddam Hussein would attack the Kurdish refugees, In an effort to reassure the Kurds and warn Iraq, he said allied military forces would provide adequate security. The president insisted this is not a change in policy, that despite their presence in northern Iraq, U.S. forces would not intervene in Iraq's civil war and risk what the president called a Vietnam-style quagmire. The president said he hoped to turn the operation over to the U.N., but he admitted sending in U.N. forces might require a Security Council resolution, which several countries might veto. I'm Ann Garrels in Washington.
1: A national rail strike starting at midnight now seems unavoidable. The Bush administration is warning that it could cripple the nation's recovery from recession by hurting several industries dependent on rail shipping. 200,000 rail workers are prepared to walk off their jobs at 12.01 Wednesday morning. The dispute between rail management and unionized workers centers on wages and health benefits. A judge in Chicago has ordered railroad to continue its commuter operations in case of a nationwide strike. NPR's Cheryl Duvall reports. The Metro commuter rail system serving Chicago and its suburbs leases track rights on freight railroads for some of its passenger trains. All the unions negotiating with those railroads had agreed with the commuter system to continue passenger service, even if they go on strike against the freight lines. The Chicago and Northwestern Railroad wouldn't go along with that arrangement and said it would shut down completely, but today a Cook County Circuit Court Judge ordered the railroad to let the passenger trains run. More than 75,000 people in the Chicago area could be affected if a strike against the freight railroads interferes with commuter rail service. The unions plan to strike at midnight Eastern time if they have not settled by then with the railroads. In Chicago, I'm Cheryl Duvall reporting. An Italian official says the environmental danger from a sunken super oil tanker may be over. The haven, which sank off the coast of Italy last weekend, seems to be empty and a dreaded ecological catastrophe averted. About 42 million gallons of Iranian crude oil on the ship apparently burned or solidified. On Wall Street, the Dow rose almost 54 points to close today at 2986.88. This is NPR. Iraq has until Thursday to provide the United Nations with a list of all of its chemical weapons, as well as ballistic missiles with a range greater than 95 miles. This is the first step that Baghdad must take under a Security Council resolution of April 3rd that Iraq agreed to implement. A study released today indicates that more than half of the Americans who lack health insurance are working adults. Nearly 30 percent are children. The number of uninsured Americans has grown steadily, and it's the focus of hearings this week in the Senate Finance Committee. NPR's Elizabeth Arnold reports. The Bush
0: administration has promised to recommend reforms in the health care delivery system in the next year. At a hearing in the Senate, Budget Director Richard Darman told the Finance Committee that from a budgetary perspective, the administration believes the problem of rising health care costs is the result of an explosion of mandatory spending programs. Senator Jay Rockefeller, a Democrat of West Virginia, disagreed, saying there's a need for even more preventative health care services, such as aid to women, infants, and children, treatment that he says in the long run saves the government money. According to a study released by the Employee Benefit Research Institute, 34 million Americans, about 16 percent of all Americans under the age of 65, have no health coverage. Members of Congress have proposed reforms ranging from national health care to mandating employers to provide every employee with health insurance. I'm Elizabeth Arnold at the Capitol.
1: The Supreme Court has limited the right of death row inmates to repeatedly appeal their convictions. In a 6-3 vote, the high court rejected arguments in the case of a Georgia death row inmate who allegedly told another prisoner that he had killed an Atlanta police officer in 1978. Warren McCluskey charged that Georgia officials violated his rights by not giving him a copy of a statement made by that prisoner. Justice Anthony Kennedy says Warren McCluskey's failure to bring up the issue in an earlier appeal prevents him from bringing it up again.
0: I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. If you want to talk about alcohol and obvious clichés, wine is the drink for connoisseurs, beer is the populist beverage. But my guest Michael Jackson writes as seriously about beer as wine experts do about the grape. He's considered by many to be the world's leading consumer writer on beer, and I suppose he doesn't have all that much competition. His books include The New World Guide to Beer and The Pocket Guide to Beer. He's also written a couple of books about single malt scotch. And he did a TV series called The Beer Hunter for London's Channel 4 and the U.S. Discovery Channel. Beer drinkers in America are becoming more discriminating. Imports are increasingly popular, as are American regional beers from the new microbreweries. And this makes Michael Jackson very happy.
3: I'm an unapologetic beer snob. I'm not a snob in other aspects of life. Perhaps I'm almost uh, an inverted snob, you know, that uh, I tend to go for the things that are perhaps not given the respect that they should be, and that's perhaps one of the things that attracted me to beer in the first place. Uh, There is an extraordinary diversity of beer available in the United States now. In fact, in some American cities, uh, there's a bigger diversity of beer available than there is in any European city. I'm I'm thinking particularly of Seattle, which is becoming... Very famous for its beer, but you could say that of Portland, Oregon, and san francisco too uh,
0: why, why do you think this upscaling of beer is happening
3: Well, the actual movement i mean there is there is a a renaissance of uh, in serious interest in beer, and that can quite clearly d- be defined as having started in Britain in nineteen seventy one um, a group of a group of people who uh, fortunately happened to be journalists uh, were complaining to each other on vacation about how beer was becoming more and more bland and more and more standardised, and they said, you know, we really should start a campaign, uh, a campaign for real ale, because ale is the type of beer that's principally drunk in Britain. Uh, they started that campaign, and it really took off quite astonished them, They thought they were this was something fairly light-hearted, and it became a major national campaign. And a part of the... one of the consequences of that was that a number of people began to start small breweries, and this was really the first time since perhaps before the First World War, that anybody in any Western country had really been starting breweries. Breweries had been things that closed, and suddenly there were things that opened. I think if you look at it more broadly, it's, uh, you can see this in any kind of consumer product. You can see it in bread, cheese, coffee, pastas, that in a, in a way perhaps mass marketing has reached its peak, and at its peak has made people perhaps yearn for more diversity, more traditional products. I think.
0: Uh, I think I'm typical of a lot of Americans in the sense that I, I drink my share of beer, but I know very little about how it's made. And it's really easy for me to visualize the making of wine, even though I know very little about that, too, because, you, you know, you, you, you make you make the grapes into a liquid, and they ferment, but I don't understand how beer is made out of malt. I mean, I've really never the, the, understood it. I, mean, I mean, I don't mean malt, I mean barley.
3: Well, let's see what we do mean. I mean yeah, two, what do we the mean? The two are very, very... The wine and beer are made by very, very similar processes. They are the but you two.
0: don't step on barley. <laughs> well, you can if you want
3: to, but it doesn't do you an awful lot of good. I mean, really, wine is a less sophisticated product because you can just step on the grapes and uh-huh. get the juice out of them, and the juice will, will ferment. Uh, as a result of the wild yeast that was on the skins, and then you'll have your wine, and your winemaker then tells you, if you don't like it, well, tough, it wasn't a very good year, you know, which brewers never tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, what Beer is made out of grain. I mean, wine is made out of fruit, and the fruit is usually gra- the grape. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. Beer is made out of grain, and the grain is usually barley, but it doesn't have to be. Other Other, other grains are used, to some extent, especially wheat. In order to get the natural fermentable sugars out of the grape all you have to do is crush it in order to get the natural fermentable sugars out of the grain you have to soak it in water so that it begins to sprout and then let it sprout for about a week and at that point the, the sprouting of it is at the optimum and you want to then stabilise it so you stabilise it by heat and that process, the process of taking grains sprouting them and arresting the sprouting by drying is the process of malting, so when you've done that to barley you've got barley malt, when you've done it to wheat, you've got wheat malt. We just usually just call it malt. Malt is the the real, what grapes are to wine, barley malt or wheat malt is to beer.
0: In preparing for the interview with you, I found all these beer commercials and their lyrics going through my head like, brewed with pride and just a kiss of the hops, you know. Like, you well, listen to all this as a kid and wonder, well, what is it?
3: A kiss of the hops is quite a nice way of putting it, really. <laughs> I, I, I suspect I've probably said that in something I've written because... They are there. The hops are there as a seasoning, and it, it's very much like if you, were, if you were making, say, espresso coffee, cappuccino, and you, you put a little bit of chocolate on top of the foam, just a little kiss of chocolate. Uh-huh. It, it's just there as a, a last little finishing seasoning to balance the flavours out.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Michael Jackson, who is considered by many to be the world's leading expert and writer about beer. And his books include The Pocket Guide to Beer, The New World Guide to Beer. Now he's also an expert on scotch, and he's the author of Michael Jackson's Complete Guide to Single Malt Scotch. Um, Have you drunk a lot of light beer?
3: No, (laughs) I haven't, and I don't really see any reason for drinking light beer. Um, No beer will make anybody thin. You, You cannot lose weight. By drinking beer. Uh, Some people, and I I have this problem myself, are very susceptible to putting on weight by drinking beer. Other people, it depends on your metabolism, other people seem to be able to drink quite a lot of beer uh, without putting on weight. The lady I uh, attempt to share my life with is is very, very slim indeed, and used to work in the fashion industry, and she likes to drink Guinness by the pint. And, And if I do that, you know, just... From looking at the Guinness I've already put a pound on <laughs> and she doesn't seem to, but nobody ever lost weight by drinking beer so if you if you're worried about your weight the best thing to do is is, is drink less beer and uh, maybe drink better beer.
0: Well why not drink light beer? It does seem to, as advertised, have fewer calories.
3: Well light beer is really uh, um scarcely worthy of the name beer. I mean, it's beer with water added. Why don't just get regular beer and add water if you want to do that but then why on earth would you want to do that? And whenever I see people drinking light beer, they're usually filling their face with nacho chips anyway. You know, it's more, there are more calories in a nacho chip than there are in a glass of beer. Also, the difference in calories between light beers and regular beers is really not very great. You know, you're talking about sort of something in the 90s in terms of calories with a light beer and something in the lower 100s with a regular beer. It's really not worth, it's not worth doing that all you're going to do is drink more of the beer. The beer's not very good. Why not, why not just drink less beer and drink good beer?
0: How about or drink wine? I mean, <laughs> does wine have a lot fewer calories than beer does?
3: Wine does have fewer calories than beer, and I like wine very much as well. I mean, my, all of my books are about beer and whiskey and single malt scotches. The, the Manchester Guardian uh, came out with a very nice line when they said, other writers on drink uh, write about the grape. Michael Jackson's the guru of the grain, and I thought that was a very nice way of putting it. Uh, so those are my passions. Um, my passions are, are beer and single malt scotches, but I still enjoy wine, and I, I don't see wine as the enemy. Uh, I see I'm looking for equal time for beer, I think.
0: You've traveled around the world tasting beers, but uh, you, you live in England, so you're very familiar with the pubs there, and I imagine you've been to the United States. A lot and are very familiar with the bars here what interests you most in the difference between english pubs and american bars
3: well you know i spend so much time in the united states that i sometimes half forget what an english pub is like but when i go home it's probably the first port of call i make is to go to my local english pubs are places where you meet to talk to people uh, that's why there's a lot of standing up in them because you can wander across the people you're not locked into a table you're sitting at if you are sitting at a table, it would probably be very small little stools that, are, that you can sort of move one up to the next table if you want to join the crowd at the next table. English pubs are really about uh, social contact. Uh, bars in America are very often very, very gloomy places. The long shadow of prohibition is still hanging over many American bars. And the places that are are not so gloomy tend really to be restaurants that have a a bar in that serves drinks. There isn't really anything like the pub in the United States. I suppose the nearest thing is the big old tavern that you find in some of the more Germanic cities of the United States, but mainly in the East and, and the Midwest. Um, places like the Berghof in Chicago, and there are there are a couple of those in Milwaukee. Um, Maxall is in New York, but even that is not really quite such a sociable place as a as an English pub would be.
0: Do you ever go to an American bar, one one of the solitary bars where everybody's sitting, not talking to each other on a bar stool and have a drink?
3: The sort of set up Joe.
0: Yes, exactly.
3: Suicidal bar. (laughs) (laughs) Not if I I can help it. I mean, they always seem to be... uh, People there. always look as if they're about to commit suicide or (laughs) about to enter into a sort of Richard Ford short story. (laughs) In fact, on the other occasions when I do go there, the guy next to me... Will usually start telling me his life story and uh, how he's just been laid off or something, and his wife left him. And you know, I, I think maybe <laughs> I should be writing Richard Ford short stories <laughs> instead of writing about the beer. But the beer in those places is never worth writing about.
0: Uh, if you're just joining us, my guest is Michael Jackson, who writes about beer. He's the author of The Pocket Guide to Beer, The New World Guide to Beer. He's considered perhaps the world's leading expert on beer. We'll take a short break, then we'll talk some more. This is Fresh Air. <laughs> Michael Jackson is my guest, and we're talking about what is probably his favorite subject, which is beer. Um, let's talk about single malt scotches, which is another big subject of yours. What's the difference between a blended whiskey, a blended scotch, right. and a single malt scotch?
3: Well, if you buy any of the well-known blended whiskies, I mean Dewar's, J and B, Ballantines, all of all of the well-known ones, Johnny Walker, uh, are all blends. What you get in that bottle is really an astonishingly large number of malt whiskies, maybe 45 different whiskies in, in a typical bottle of, say, Ballantine's or Johnny Walker. And those 45 different malt whiskies are blended together to try to give a roundness of flavour that'll keep everybody happy. And they occupy about 40% of the liquid in the bottle. The other 60% of the liquid in the bottle is a lighter-tasting grain whisky, Uh, which may be made from barley malt or unmalted barley or wheat or any grain that they choose, Um, and is really a sort of filler. It's it's still quite tasty, but it is a sort of filler. And some of those products are... Well, all of those products are all very fine products. But supposing you're drinking your glass of shivers and you're thinking, well, there's something in here from the highlands and there's something from the lowlands and there's something from the islands. I wonder what those whiskies would taste like on their own. Well, the way to find that out is to sample some of the single malts. Uh, it's, it's the difference between listening to an orchestra and listening to a soloist. The single malts are soloist.
0: I don't know how much you're into the folklore surrounding different drinks, but I'm thinking if you, if you, if you think you've got a to chill today or you're coming down with a cold or something, you're not going to go pour yourself a glass of wine or even have a beer. You'll pour yourself a shot of scotch.
3: I did once re- read a remedy. Uh, it was written by a Frenchman, of course, that if you had uh, wine about a pint of Burgundy a day would be very good for you. If you had a cold, a pint of Burgundy a day would be very good for you. Don't don't take that terribly seriously. (laughs) Uh, Scotch Scotch certainly gives the appearance of being much more warming, and since it's relatively strong, probably quite antiseptic too. I'm sticking to that belief anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some people say that you won't get as hungover with Scotch as you will with beer or wine. What's your experience?
3: My experience, I regret to say... It's to the contrary. I, I have a very I have a very definite belief about hangovers. Uh which is essentially that the the blander the product is, the less likely you are to get a hangover from it. And the fuller in flavor it is not fuller in body, but fuller in flavor it is, probably more complex in flavor, probably the greater your chance of getting a hangover. That's all of my experience and I believe it to be true and I believe it to be based on the fact that the the natural chemical compounds that occur in fine wines, fine beers, single malt scotches that make them complex and interesting, unfortunately may also give you a hangover if you if you drink too much of them. Mm. Um, there was some British writer who said he felt sorry for people who didn't wake up with a hangover because that was as good as they were going to feel all day. Um, <laughs> I just I just throw that little philosophical thought into no. our discussion,
0: do you get hango- hung over much, or are you such the professional at drinking that you never overdrink?
3: drink well, i very rarely I very rarely drink too much um, that maybe makes me sound like a bit of a party pooper, but when i 'm working i 'm um, drinking to taste these products, so i 'm certainly not chugging them. Um, I think we all occasionally go to a dinner party perhaps and you know have rather a lot of wine and maybe have a digestive afterwards and get a hangover. And I do suffer rather... When I do get a hangover, I suffer miserably from hangovers, and there's no there's no real cure. I mean, you can take drink a lot of water before you go to bed, but you probably don't remember to do that. Uh, the most important thing to do if you have a hangover, really, is to do something about your blood sugar level in the morning, and the best thing to do is to... You really have to eat something, H- however little you feel like eating something, you really must eat something. You must force yourself to eat something. Something like toast and honey is, is very good. Or I think my, my sort of classic Jewish recipe, although it's a Jewish recipe for everything, of course, is chicken soup. Um, but chicken soup is very good for getting rid of a hangover.
0: Even for breakfast, huh?
3: Well, <laughs> depends how late you lay in, I suppose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how did you get involved with uh, being a professional uh, Beer writer, especially given that so few people have focused on on beer as compared to wine
3: I was originally a newspaper journalist and mm-hmm. i I still contribute a lot to newspapers and I contribute to the the food pages of a, a London paper called The Independent and occasionally to The Washington Post and to various food and drink magazines. but originally, I was a, a hard news journalist and an columnist, and for a time a television journalist too and i all my buddies they all drank beer, journalists all drank beer they all loved it, they all talked about it incessantly among themselves, how do, do you think this one's better than the one we had last night, you know, I was on an assignment in such a city and I had this one and wow, you should taste that they, they they were fascinated with beer yet when it came to the idea of trying to persuade the newspaper or the magazine or the TV station to actually do something about beer they would say, oh well people aren't interested in that
0: I mean to cover it
3: yes, even yeah. though they were all interested in it themselves they somehow thought that their readers out there had a quite different perception and I always felt that it was very odd that people loved drinking beer and then went off to write articles about wine. So <laughs> I was always trying to, um, I was a sort of guerrilla warrior in, even in those days, trying to get stories about beer into the paper. Very often the only way around doing that was to to actually ostensibly write about pubs and sort of sneak in the beer information. The pub was the Trojan horse and you snuck in the beer information inside that Trojan horse and uh, eventually somebody asked me to write a book on pubs and really halfway through writing the book I mean I accepted the assignment and the book eventually was published and everybody was happy with it but halfway through I'd realized I really wanted to write a book about beer
0: mm-hmm. um, when, when did you first start developing a taste for things like beer and scotch
3: my parents didn't drink so they weren't anti-drink but they just didn't drink very much and so it was a sort of almost bravado when I was a young journalist to go out and drink beer I mean, I, I, I liked beer right from the age of 16 when I was actually too young really to go in a pub. I liked beer very much and I was always really fascinated by it. I tasted my first single malt scotch at the age of about 18 at a time when single malt scotches were scarcely available outside Scotland. And in fact, I did taste it in Scotland. Uh, and I just thought it was wonderful. And I'd been wanting to write about single malt scotches ever since, but it was hard ever to persuade a publisher to publish anything on that because they said, look, nobody's heard of them, you know, you can't get them. But but now that's really changing.
0: Um, uh, let me ask you one final question. Uh, are you tired of people making Michael Jackson jokes, you know, about, about uh, the singer versus you? <laughs> well, I guess if I'm
3: not used to it now, I never will be. What,
0: what's your standard comeback on that?
3: Well, it depends uh, precisely what the joke is, but, you know, I, I like to point out to people that I had the name first. Uh, I've considered writing to, to the other Michael Jackson saying that for a very small royalty I'll licence my name to him, otherwise I'll <laughs> sue him for stealing my name. <laughs> I, I'm a terrible dancer, but uh, I, I, I can sing. I think, I think when I sing, I sing rather more uh, black people's music than he does because uh, I'm a lover of the blues, so... <laughs> um, I even have a glove, uh, which I occasionally use just for a little joke. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Tasting glove, you know, to put a bit of glitter into my beer.
0: (laughs) Well, Michael Jackson, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Michael Jackson is the author of The New World Guide to Beer, The Pocket Guide to Beer, and The Complete Guide to Single Malt Scotch. Fresh air book critic John Leonard has a new book to recommend. The British author Sarah Maitland has a new novel called Three Times Table. One of her previous novels, Daughter of Jerusalem, won the Somerset Mom Award. And she also wrote Map of the New Country, a study of women and Christianity. John Leonard has a review of Three Times Table.
4: Sarah Maitland's Three Times Table is that vanishing wonder, a novel with characters we care about, an intellectual stimulation, a wise child enchantment, and a magic box of Christian symbols. Imagine, from London, a feminist C.S. Lewis... We're at the end of a tiring day for 74-year-old Rachel, a paleontologist and curator of a museum of dinosaurs, who has just repudiated her faith in Darwinian evolutionary gradualism. It's been an equally tiring day for Rachel's daughter, Phoebe, a 37-year-old socialist feminist gardener, who had once upon a time been a brilliant mathematician, and who has finally gone to the doctor about a lump in her breast. And it's been an exhausting day for Phoebe's daughter, Rachel's granddaughter, Fifteen-year-old Maggie, who has had to go through her first menstrual period, no longer a child, and bereft of her dragon. If you think Maggie's dragon is imaginary, that's because you haven't read Maitland's novel. Darwin and mathematics may be imaginary. Maggie's dragon is not. I'm not going to tell you about Martin, Rachel's awful husband, Phoebe's adoring father, or the dull men in Phoebe's life. Three Times Table is about women surviving to save one another not St. George. From Rachel, we hear a lot about digging for fossils, and DNA, and Jungian anthropology. We also meet catastrophe theory. According to catastrophe theory, the world did not emerge from a delicate overlapping of species, a subtle interconnection of environment, climate, food chains, mutations, and adaptations, but from cosmic clash, accidental, inexplicable, random choice, smashing into the patterns, big bang thinking. Rachel used to believe that dragons were deep race memories of dinosaurs. Now she's worried about sister stars of the Sun, with names like Nemesis or Cali, in long wicked orbits that rain down mass extinctions on us every 26 million years or so. From passive Phoebe, we hear a lot about politics and plants, as well as the burning clarity and brilliant patterns and complex elegance of numbers. She mourns the day of her father's death, when she abandoned math and virtue. She has fallen in love with a lump in her breast. It grows sweetly like a bulb. Have I painted it myself? Did I plant it like Blake's poem? This dark lover, she says, might take her on the last great adventure, to a land where numbers and patterns will be alive with emotion and meaning, and where the inaudible note of the ninth planet will complete the perfect tune, will break and remake the octave, and she will play it on the cello, her legs spread around it. From Maggie, we get dragon lore, night colors, the magic and intimacy of the courts of childhood, the power of flying through space above the singing whales and lunar rainbows, the great wall and the world tree, the Amazon and Babylon, and the terror, too, of falling like Lucifer. She has decided she must leave this labyrinth of memory and desire for what she calls the daylight of loving and needing her dragon won't let her. Until, like Saint Margaret of Antioch, she binds it with a daisy chain. Until, like anorexic Joan of Arc, she assumes on her bed a cruciform and lets the sky crash down. Really, wonderfully, all in one witty book. Mothers and daughters, sex and death, angels and Darwin, dragons and dinosaurs. Plus, and I kid you not, salvation through love and work.
0: John Leonard is media critic for CBS Sunday Morning. He reviewed Three Times Table by Sarah Maitland. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air.
4: Major funding for Fresh Air is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional support comes from the listeners of WHYY in Philadelphia, where Fresh Air is produced, and Apple Computer, in personal computing, providing the power to be your best. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: From Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. Each year, PEN the International Writers Organization honors authors who have been persecuted for their writing. One of this year's awards went to Abraham Serfati, a Moroccan writer who is serving a life sentence in prison. Last night his wife Christine accepted the award on his behalf. Coming up, she tells us how she hid him from the authorities for two years in Morocco and was forced out of the country when he was captured. Also, classical music critic Lloyd Schwartz explains why he calls Elliot Carter America's most democratic contemporary composer. That's all coming up on Fresh Air.
3: major Kurdish cities. And that, of course, is the reason why this flood of refugees came about. Inside those cities, uh, a few people are going back. I would say maybe 5% of those who fled may have trickled back in recent days. Uh, We get conflicting reports of conditions in these cities. Certainly, uh, some of the Peshmerga sympathizers have had their houses blown up and looted by the army. Uh, That has been told to me not just by refugees, but also by army deserters. Uh, They say there's also been a number of arrests of Peshmerga. Moga sympathizes. But in general, the government does seem to be trying to woo uh, the refugees back, but not very successfully.
5: Jim Muir reporting from inside the Kurdish region of Iraq. On Capitol Hill, the House Armed Services Committee held hearings today on how the performance of the Patriot missile is affecting the nation's strategic defense initiative and heard a charge that Israel may have suffered more damage from missile strikes after Patriot batteries arrived. NPR's Neil Conan has more.
6: Theodore Postel, a professor at MIT, told the committee that 13 Iraqi Scuds struck the Tel Aviv area before patriots were deployed and that 11 were engaged by the U.S. Army missiles afterwards. Postel said that the later Scuds damaged three times as many apartments and caused 50% more injuries. Under questioning, though, the MIT professor conceded that his conclusions were speculative and his data incomplete. Postal did say that the performance of the Patriot did nothing to solve the intractable technical difficulties of defense against more sophisticated ballistic missiles. Another witness, former Pentagon official Richard Pearl, said that the Patriot had proven once and for all that ballistic missiles can be intercepted effectively. Pearl also said that the Gulf War showed that deterrence can fail and that theories of mutual vulnerability out the window as soon as the missiles start falling. This is Neil Conant.
5: A federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit brought by news organizations against Pentagon rules during the Persian Gulf War. The judge said that the media had the right to sue the government, but that he did not have enough information to decide the case now that the war is over. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrials climbed over 53 points to close at 2,986.88 in very heavy trading. This is NPR News. Both sides in contract talks expect a nationwide rail strike at midnight. The strike, the first coast-to-coast walkout since 1982, could keep some 235,000 freight workers off the job and stop the flow of one-third of the nation's goods. Presidential spokesman Marlon Fitzwater said that the Bush administration is ready to work with Congress on speedy legislation to impose a settlement and end a walkout. However, House Speaker Foley says that there will be no action before a strike gets underway. At issue is a three-year-old dispute over wages, work rules, and health care expenses. An oil slick caused by an explosion in a tanker in the northern Mediterranean has hit several Italian beaches, but good weather conditions have helped salvage teams recover much of the oil. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli reports from Genoa.
2: Were deployed again today in a wide area of the Gulf of Genoa, skimming the Iranian heavy crude that poured out of the super tanker The Haven before it sank Sunday. Authorities are still unable to determine how much oil has spilled out, but a first examination of the ship's hull at a depth of 65 meters has raised the level of optimism here. The harbor master, Admiral Antonio Alati, said today that underwater pictures show signs that perhaps much of the oil that was inside the tanker was burned off or has caramelized to a. Level pollutant substance. But hotel owners along the Italian Riviera and fishermen are very concerned that the oil slick will irreparably damage the vital tourism industry for years to come. This is Silvia Poggioli in Genoa.
5: The number of Canadians making shopping trips across the border went up again in February. According to the government of Canada, the number of one-day car trips to the U.S. climbed more than 27 percent compared to the same time last year. One analyst said in addition to shopping trips, some people are crossing the border to buy gasoline at cheaper prices.
0: This is NPR News in Washington. This is Fresh Air. In countries where dissent is not tolerated, writers often end up in prison. The American branch of the International Writers' Organization, Penn, has a Freedom to Write committee which works on behalf of imprisoned and harassed writers around the world. Last night, Penn gave one of its two 1991 Freedom to Write awards to Abraham Serfati of Morocco. Of the 400 cases of imprisoned writers Penn has documented, he is the only writer they're aware of who is serving a life sentence. Serfati edited the political and literary magazine Souffle, which was outspoken in its criticism of King Hassan of Morocco. Serfati was also a prominent member of Morocco's left wing. He went into hiding in 1972 when the government cracked down on the left. He was tried in absentia and given a life sentence. He was captured and imprisoned in 1974 and tried again two years later. Christine Juvin hid Serfati for the two years he was underground. She now lives in France. Only family members are allowed to visit prisoners. She married Serfati in a prison ceremony in 1986 after President Mitterrand's wife Danielle intervened on her behalf. Last night, Christine Serfati was in New York to accept the Freedom to Write award on behalf of her imprisoned husband. I spoke to her earlier today. She was joined by Faith Sale, the co-chair of Penn's Freedom to Write Committee. Christine Serfati was a teacher in Morocco in 1972 when she was asked to hide Abraham Serfati. For her, it was like repaying a family favor.
7: When I was young, in, a child in the war, my father was a resistant, and people were uh, did the same for him. for him. I mean, he was saved because people were hidden him.
0: Your father was in the uh, yes. resistance, and yes. he was hidden yes. in and France.
7: Yes, and when a friend of mine came home in Casablanca in 1972, and told and asked me, "Want to hide uh, Abraham Safati?" I never knew the man, and I knew the name to be Frank, but not the man at all. But I couldn't say no, and so I just had to say yes, and so did I.
6: Can you tell us what it was like hiding him?
7: Yes, it was difficult. For a month, I I headed him home. But I was married at that time, and I my, my husband agreed for a month. And I had children. It was a bit difficult. Uh, I never knew what to say exactly to people coming and so on. And after a month, I tried to find other people to, to have him. But I couldn't and <laughs> I didn't success at all. And so I, I asked friends of mine, French one, that were leaving Morocco, to leave their apartment to their name and I will pay the rent for for that. And I I I left Abraham Safati and two of his companions. In those flats, I think they had two or something like that. And they, at that time, they had quite a normal life. I mean, they could go out and I did the shopping and paying the rounds and and uh, light and things like that. But they just changed their haircut and their moustache and, and way of dressing. And they could, Casablanca is a big town so it was possible for them to live
0: how dangerous was it for you to do what you did for them
7: i think it was but really i couldn't said no and when you have some someone for a month what can can you do after that just put him in the street and at the police again you know if you start to do things like that you have to continue and i'm happy i had because One of his companions was a young man, studying, teaching exactly philosophy, was a very nice boy, some 30 years old, I think, at that time. And when he was captured by the police, he was tortured and he died. And so I'm still thinking I was right to do it
0: no he he was captured in mm. 1974 how did how did they find him who found him
7: i think there was a big uh, conf- arabic conference in casablanca or rabat i don't remember and of course lots of police control all over the place in towns and so on and some some young man of the same organization was captured tortured and he talked and so the police could arrest quite a lot of of people of the this organization, rather intellectual organization, I must say. And uh, they torture, and lots of them. There were, I think, nearly 200 people arrested around the same time. And so was I, by the way. You were arrested when uh, Abraham Safari was captured? Yes, I was arrested, and I was taken in a clandestine, can you say that in English? Yes. clandestine centre of police, where they were, but I couldn't see them. I just thought maybe they were there. And me, I was French, and it was very different for them. So they questioned me the night, and then they, take, they took me back home, and they put policemen at the door and said I couldn't go out, and took my passport And I stayed home for three months and a policeman, I mean officer I think, somebody rather important they say, came nearly every day to ask questions to me. He showed me an incredible quantity of photographs of people and tell me who is that, you know him, and keys too. He wanted me to recognize keys and I have problem with keys. I don't like, especially like them. Wait, he he wanted you. What did he want you to do with keys? To recognize keys. Say this key is. I know the apartment. Or I know the house. Or so and so. But I couldn't even recognize my keys. So it was a. It didn't work at all. And after three months, they took the Polish people out. I could go out of the house. But I had no passport for two two years and a half, I think. And uh, French people at that time, I mean, <laughs> embassy and so on, didn't much. I think they didn't li- they didn't like me much. I just made trouble for them and so. And uh, I was expelled in 1976 just before the trial started.
0: Were you relieved, in a way, to be expelled? Because once you got out of the country, at least you wouldn't be imprisoned
7: and tortured. Well, half-half. I was deeply attached to Morocco, to Moroccan people and so on. It was my life, if I can say. And um, I left them all. I didn't see them again. I left them in such terrible condition. It was very difficult to me to, to be in France again so far, and able to do so little for them.
0: My guest is Christine Serfati, a human rights activist, who is married to the Moroccan writer Abraham Serfati, who is serving a life sentence in Morocco. More after the short break. This is Fresh Air. Christine Safati is my guest.
7: How often do you see Abraham Safati in prison now? Now every since since I could marry him in nineteen eighty six, I can go there when I want to, but there is a problem of working and doing things and, and of money too. And I go generally every two months, two months and a half. And I stay 10 days and I go to each visit possible, that means four visits a week. And that means if I stay 10 days, for example, I can go to six visits that are very long and easy because they are direct visits, collective, but direct visits, and we can talk a lot. Christine
6: told us that she thinks probably She and Abraham spend more time talking than most married couples. (gasps) (laughs) Certainly. (laughs) Certainly.
0: You got married in prison? Yes, yes. Who did the ceremony?
7: It was a bit difficult for me, I must say. Uh, Abraham Safati is a Jew, you know, a Moroccan Jew. And uh, it was a, do you say, rabbi? Rabbi. Rabbi, who did the wedding with the director of the jail, and lots of people I never saw in my life. And I was a bit... uh, well, not very well. (laughs) But after that, two days after, I could see him alone. I mean, not alone, it's a collective visit with God and so on, but I could talk quietly with him. And I saw he was a very respectable man and a very, very good man I knew before didn't change at all ex- expect, except in in more goodness and more respectability, I think. And uh, I thought it was right to do that. I, I didn't want him to die alone in jail. It's just horrible no. Has no family now.
0: Christine, what are the conditions in the prison?
7: I used to say, because I'm frank, I think, I used to say there are Good, but I'm quite fed up now to say that because, you know, everything they have and other prisoners don't have in Morocco, lots of them, they have them because they struggle for that, you know. They, they have no gift from the administration. For instance, they eat normally, but they buy their food, the normal food. Prison gives so little, they have to buy other things. And they have a television, and, uh, you know, in Morocco, you can't see any other thing than Moroccan television, but still. But the family bought the television for them. And if we have direct visits, it's because they had quite a lot of, of, uh, how do you say that, anger, anger strike, and very hard ones. And anyway... Seventeen years later, what does that mean, good conditions? This prison, this jail is horrible, and I saw the cells and courier, and it's so ugly. I mean, I can't say any more good condition. Just what I can say is other prisoners in Morocco are in more, much more terrible conditions.
0: Do you know if your husband is able to write while in prison?
7: Yes. What is he writing? He's writing, for instance, articles for... He had three articles from him published in the journal Le Monde since uh, the last four months, let's say. S- things like that. Uh, articles for, for newspapers or reviews or so on. And, of course, they... they goes out from jail non-officially, and not not by me either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they manage, I don't know how.
0: Christine, um, what are your plans now? You'll be going back to France, and, and when is your next trip to Morocco?
7: I suppose at the end of May, something like that, I think.
0: And um, what will you be telling Abraham Serfati about the award
7: ceremony last night? Uh, everything, <laughs> really everything. The way women were dressed and, and I saw Lorraine Bacall and I, I, I was with uh, great well-known writers and so on. Christine, do you, do you have
0: any hope that Abraham Serfati will ever get out of prison?
7: Well, difficult to say, you know, because uh, 17 years of hope, it's a bit long. But I think we have to continue and so on and to have small victories and small victories and hope for the best. But I, I, I really don't can't can't say more about hope. Have you lost hope? No, I'm very optimistic <laughs> person I think. But I can't have any date, you know, any date before me, sort of general hope.
0: Christine Serfati Last night, she accepted Penn's Freedom to Write Award on behalf of her imprisoned husband, the Moroccan writer Abraham Surfati. An award was also given to Francisco Valencia of El Salvador. This is Fresh Air. Robert Siegel's with us. Let's see what's coming up on All Things Considered. Robert, what do you have on the Kurdish refugees?
3: Well, we hear today from Jim Muir, a reporter who's inside northern Iraq, describing the situation in the town of Suleimaniya. Uh, Kurdish town, Uh, It says that uh, the government is in control of the big cities, but elsewhere the Peshmerga Kurdish guerrillas seem to have uh, the run of the place. We'll be hearing about the terrible health conditions of the the Kurds who are trying to leave northern Iraq for Turkey and Iran from a doctor just back from the region. Uh, Also uh, uh, reports about increased life expectancy in the U.S., often attributed to high-tech medicine. We'll be hearing about concerns that perhaps we should be paying more attention to preventive medicine.
0: Thanks, Robert. That and more coming up on All Things Considered from National Public Radio. Elliot Carter composed his first string quartet 40 years ago. Classical music critic Lloyd Schwartz says since that time, Carter's been producing some of the most profound and interesting music of any American composer. Lloyd has a review of two recent recordings of Carter's music.
8: When Aaron Copland died last year at the age of 90, he hadn't produced any new work for nearly 20 years. But at the age of 82, Elliot Carter is still going strong. In the past few years, he's given us some of his most beautiful and vivid scores. Two years ago, there was a distinguished recording of Carter's four string quartets by the Arditi Quartet. Now there's an even better recording of the fourth quartet by the wonderful group it's dedicated to, the composer's string quartet. Their recording of Carter's first two quartets was listed in High Fidelity magazine as one of the 50 great albums of the decade. The fourth quartet was composed in 1986. It's in four continuous movements. The Arditi Quartet plays it in just over 20 minutes. The composer's quartet takes nearly four minutes longer. But the composer's quartet isn't so much slower as more spacious. The music has more time to expand, to breathe. Let me play you the extraordinary epilogue. Exuberant outbursts, sudden stops, and muted, inward searching passages, we've heard them all earlier in the quartet. Suddenly they begin alternating in rapid succession, like a series of double takes. Who's speaking? Who's interrupting? Carter is the most democratic of modern American composers. For Carter, a community is made up of individual voices. He encourages each member of an ensemble to play with his or her own voice, at his or her own pace and rhythm. The fourth quartet may be Carter's most social and communal and intercommunicative piece. The group tries to solve the problems of the world, maybe the problems of existence itself, but there's no answer or no one answer, I find that baffled little shrug at the end as touching and as humble as Keaton or Chaplin. We can hear this democracy of voices in the four recent Carter pieces on an album that features the Swiss cellist Thomas Demenga. There are the almost weightless enchanted preludes for flute and cello, and the pungent contrasts of esprit rude, esprit doux which was Carter's witty and touching 60th birthday tribute to Pierre Boulez. There's an 80th birthday riconoscenza or Remembrance, for the Italian composer Goffredo Petrassi, which incorporates many personality contrasts within the one solo violin. And there's Carter's most delicious later work, the hilarious and moving triple duo for three pairs of instruments. Here's the opening gambit that triggers the whole Rube Goldberg machine. This Thomas Domenga album begins with his rich performance of Bach's C major suite for solo cello. In the liner notes, Heinz Holliger the conductor, composer, and much-admired oboist for whom Carter composed his recent oboe concerto, comments on this juxtaposition of old and new. He reminds us that Bach and Carter can be described with the same language. Great music creates a continuum. Holliger urges us to relax, lie back, remember the future, and try to foresee the past.
0: Lord Schwartz is classical music editor of the Boston Phoenix. I'm Terry Gross.
4: Major funding for Fresh Air is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional support comes from the listeners of WHYY in Philadelphia, where Fresh Air is produced. And from Talbot's, retailers of women's classic clothing and accessories through stores and catalogs. one 8 talbots This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: Maker Ross McElwee set out to make a documentary about the Civil War, he ended up with Sherman's March, a film chronicle of his past girlfriends. On the next Fresh Air, McElwee tells us how his film about the culture around the Berlin Wall turned into something else when the wall was torn down. I'm Terry Gross. I hope you'll join us for the next Fresh Air.
8: 75 degrees, 10 to 15 mile per hour winds. And you're listening to 91FM at a minute before 8.
1: Hi, this is Melinda Whiting. Join me for the next Artscape when Philadelphia playwright Bruce Graham tells us about his new play, Top of the World. It's a satire about TV news, Talking Whales, Talking Whales, Talking Whales.